Blog Talk Radio. morning, good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cinephiles Radio. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. Thank you for joining me today. 10 a.m. Pacific Time. 1 a.m. New York Time. How's your weekend so far? It's Sunday. Almost St. Patty's Day. Any of you celebrate St. Patty's Day? Call in if you do, 657-383-1444. Thank you for joining us today. Today we have an excellent guest. James Young is going to join us today. Stuntman, writer, producer, director, actor. He does them all. His credits are all over the place. You can go from Nightcrawler, the... It just came out. Nightcrawler was an awesome film, by the way. Deja Vu, Eagle Eye. Born in Queens, New York, but that's for later. We'll talk to him a little later on. James Young. So how were you? How was your week? Did you see anything good? Did you see Chappie? By Blah Punk? That was an excellent, excellent film. Now, good marginal ratings. The marginal ratings. I think people were kind of looking for a, uh, you know, a District Nine, and they kind of got an Elysium. If you look at a second film, Elysium, I thought was a great, a great film. You know, not amazing, but still better than anything that uh, Brett Ratner could do. <laughs> it's all in context here. So I thought Chappie was really great. What a lot of people don't realize about Chappie is that Chappie was a short film. Now, Blanc Punk did Chappie a while back, just like Disc 9. As a short movie. And it was incredible. And then he made it into a full-length feature film. Just like he did right now. And we just got the word, well, recently, about two weeks ago, that he is signed on to do the next Alien film. Now, it's going to be Alien 2.1. It's going to take place between, you know, after, between two and three. So one and two take place, and then between two and three. It's hilarious to me. It's hilarious to me that the audience is sometimes wrong. Just like producers and production companies are sometimes wrong. I mean, Joss Whedon was hired to do Wonder Woman at Warner Brothers. And they didn't want to do a $50 million World War II Wonder Woman film, so they ditched him. And he went off to Marvel, and then he made the entire Marvel Universe idiots. And then he made all these fantastic, amazing movies. And now they're just kicking themselves in the rear ends. So you can see how producers uh, you know, or, or production companies, sometimes they could lose their vision. They could misunderstand something. The same way the audience in, in, this, in this way, I believe, misunderstood Chappie. Look how much money Spider-Man 2 made. That is not an original movie. Chappie is an original movie that this human being made. Oh, okay, you can compare it to Short Circuit. 
circa 1985, but I don't think so. Chappie is its own entity, its own world. Within the same world of Elysium and District 9 and what have you. The world that, that Flowpunk created. It's, it's amazing. So give it a chance. Go see Chappie. I think you really, really love it. Another great movie to see is John Wick by the great Keanu. I cannot stop watching this film. As a writer, as a martial artist, as a choreographer, as a director, you want to see new things. You want to imagine new things. When you see John Wick, it is new, brand new. Some of that choreography, some of the scenes, some of the angles that they use, some of the moves are original, are fresh. When you see, you will be shocked at what you're looking at. It's amazing. John Wick. I would say it's, action-wise, as comparative to The Matrix, the first time you saw it, where you're like, oh my gosh, this is shocking. That is how shocking it is to you. So, John Wick. John Wick. What's interesting about that film is that the director of the film is also a stunt choreographer. For a very long time, martial arts choreographer, and he wanted him direct, to direct the film, but the production company and, and the studio did not want this no name to direct the film. So Keanu threw forty million dollars at the guy. A lot like how you know Peter Jackson threw what forty million dollars at Ballpunk to do District Nine. Wow, that's a good tie-in, isn't it? <laughs> because nobody's going to hire him to do District Nine. So, a lot of people don't realize that Peter Jackson threw money at him because he was going to do the Halo movie. And then he turned him down for it on his ideas. It's incredible. So, John Wick. John Wick is a great film. Now, everybody's got Netflix. I've met five people this week who do not have Netflix, and I think they're Quakers. But other than that, I think you all have Netflix. Go watch Unbreakable. What, what's the name of the show again? Oh my God, did I forget the name of the show? Oh my gosh, the new show by Tina Fey. Thank there you go. You got for Google, right? The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I, I think, is one of the funniest shows right now, personally. It's a, it's executive produced by Tina Fey. Uh, it's a... Ellie Kemper is starting. I, I love Ellie Kemper. Ellie Kemper was in, in um, The Office. She was in, you know. Jeez, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank this weekend. I must be really tired. <laughs> I must be very, very tired. She was in The Office. She was, she was in uh, Jump Street 21. 21 Jump Street, excuse me. Uh, she's a great actress. Ty Spurgis, uh, Carol Kane. These guys are great. It's got an 8.4 in IMDb. It's got a 9.2 in Rotten Tomatoes. I, I think it deserves a 10. If you liked 30 Rock, if you liked Parks and Recs, if you liked Community, if you liked The Office, you will love this show. The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It, basically, what, what the story tells is that she's a, a woman who's stuck in a bunker for 15 years, since she was 15 years old, um, by a crazy preacher who tells her that the world's ended. So she's in a cult. And she gets released and she, she moves to New York and she lives her life brand new. So it's kind of like a big, but not mystical. 
or creepy. When you think about Brit, big is a little creepy. Mm-hmm. But it's a great show. It's an excellent show. Created by uh, Robert Carlock and Tina Fey. I, I really think the show is, is one of the best shows on the market right now. And you can watch all 13 episodes today. You can binge watch them. And they're 26 minutes each. 24 minutes, 25 minutes. It's not House of Cards. It's not, by the way, House of Cards season three. But anyways, number one, Kimmy Schmidt is 26 minutes, 24 minutes, 27 minutes each. So it's a flash in the pan. You'll be able to watch four episodes in, in no time. Snap your finger. You'll be done. But the show is fantastic. And let me tell you something else about the show that's great. It has confidence. Unlike a pilot show that doesn't have confidence, it starts off in a way that it doesn't end. You can see it veer along the way. They can tell that certain things are not working, so they tweak it. I'm not a big fan of that. You You should be prepared, as far as I'm concerned. Prepared to say anything, write anything. You should have your storylines down. That is the way TV shows are being made now. The way TV shows are made now is that people are coming in with complete pitches, 13-episode pitches now, instead of like one pitch for one season or two seasons or three seasons, you know. Now people are coming in with story arcs of what they want in their show. That's, that's fantastic. Even when you watch the show with Lost, Lost is an amazing show by J.J. Abrams. Robert Ori wrote it in several other ways. But you can tell during season two, season three, that they had a a misfire or they changed views or, or they changed the way they were going. You can tell. I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining, but, uh, you know, it, it is a little disconcerting when you see people change things. Now, fortunately, Lost, you know, they didn't lose their audience. They, they kept their audience. They only got better along the way. But it could easily have turned bad. It could easily have turned bad. It didn't. I would say they got lucky or their experience in the past pushed them towards the future. Anyways, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is a great show. From episode 1 to episode 13, I really loved it. So what movies come out this weekend? A couple of new movies come out this weekend. Let's talk about one in particular, and let's bring on James up to that. The movie that came out this weekend is Cinderella. What did you think? If you saw it, call me 1-657-383-1444. Did you like Cinderella? Do you like that story? I don't. I think out of all the Disney stories, I think it's, it's quite possibly one of the most insulting because you, what you're trying to tell me is that this woman who came from royal birth, who had a father who was a king and a mother who was a queen, or a father who was rich and a mother who was rich, basically gave herself up to destitution to her, her mother and her two sisters. And the thing that she needed to say to her was a man. It's hilarious. You can say Sleeping Beauty. You can say a lot of things. But to me, Cinderella to me is is definitely one of those. I, I know a lot of people love it because of the you know, making you something that you're not perspective. The 
the beautiful woman, the the aspect of changing somebody from A to B to C. I understand the likability of the character, but it's still incredibly insulting. It's not like the Karate Kid where you find a mentor who makes you who you are because you always had the untapped potential. This is more of a, you know, let me give you something good. Basically, the, the, the fairy godmother is watching over torture and tyranny <laughs> over like her maybe 20 to 15 years of her life and then comes to her last second so she can ca- catch a dude. That's strange. That's a strange story to want to continue over for the next thousand years. I understand people want gallantry. Why don't you bring King Arthur? It's a hell of a lot more interesting. Or Peter Pan. Wendy's pretty awesome. Or Sacagawea. Let's, let's watch some movies on some real female characters instead of these lame ducks. Yeah, so I didn't... I've never been a gigantic fan of the story of Cinderella. You know, I just lied because I'm going to talk about one more story because I want to talk about this one. It was about Scarlett Johansson starring in the, the, the manga Ghost in the Shell. Now, there's a gigantic petition going on right now about that. It's not exactly what you think it would be. See, a lot of people do not want Scarlett Johansson to play a Japanese character being a white woman. I personally believe that's something that, that comes out of stemming from, from Lucy. Because the, the big complaint about Lucy, the movie Lucy, was that her eyes turned blue when she took that drug. And we need another white woman to be the epitomization of the end of our culture or the, or the, you know, the, the 100% potential of your brain power. I remember lots of people were making that comment of, of course you have a white woman with blue eyes who... The blonde hair, who's going to be the epitomization of perfection at the you know at the end of your the, the, the human strain. Um, first of all, the drug is blue. So when her eyes were turning blue, it was the drug. It was not her eyes turning blue. So that's that's number one, and number two, uh, that's a pretty broad statement. I understand. I understand where people are coming from. I, I myself am a Eurasian, so I understand that comment completely. But it's not like. Oh, let me see. The Memoirs of a Geisha, where you get all Chinese actors to play Japanese women. Or Marco Polo, when you get all kinds of different Asian actors, including Filipinos, to play Mongolians. Aren't there actually Mongolians who are alive on this earth? And you can find any? Seriously? So that's a lot more insulting. So there's a gigantic petition about, I think there's about 50,000 hits right now, 50,000 signs. They do not want Scarlett Johansson to play the lead character in, in Ghost in the Shell. This is what I say. Shut up, please. <laughs> I want this movie to be made any way it can. Akira is owned by by uh, by Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if you know that. And it was going to be an all-white cast previously. And he changed his mind and, and they dropped production and they're going to go again. Listen, just let the movies get made. Let people know what they are. First, they were comics. They were manga first. They were comics. Then they were made into the, the animation. And now they're made into short, short animation movies that people can watch. And now it's going to be made into a motion picture. Be patient. Stop complaining about everything. Be happy that you... Listen, if you didn't have... I did not like X-Men 1 and 2. I know it's everybody's favorite X-Men. I did not like it. Why? I collected X-Men since I was a little kid. 
So I did not like the movie at all. X-Men 1 and 2. Did I say that to anybody? No. You know why? I was happy I was watching X-Men. It's something I wanted to see all my life. I finally was seeing a movie. Do you think I'm going to complain about it? No. You know why? Because if I don't go see the film, they're, they're not going to make a second one. It, it reminds me of what, the, what somebody was saying about Kick-Ass 2. You want to see Kick-Ass 3? Go pay for the second film. You didn't, so shove it. <laughs> that reminds me a lot of this film, too. So Ghost in the Shell is being made renounced in, in pre-production. Support the movie. It's got a gigantic star in it. That's what you want. There are no Japanese gigantic stars right now that can carry a movie for $200 million right now. Put a demand in there for that kind of actress. And it'll appear. Put that as an interest of yours. Anyways, that's a little peppy of mine. And people who know me know that I like things fairsy squaresy. I would rather have a Japanese actress. Of course I would. Or a Eurasian actress. I would, like Olivia Munn, when she was maybe about 10 years younger. I would, without a doubt. Or Hanahate. I would absolutely pick these people to play player. But what you need right now is a Scarlett Johansson to carry over a film. It's going to be $100 million. So people know what this film is. So they can make another animation. So they can make another movie starring a Japanese actress. Where the story is the centerpiece and not the actress. Because right now, the actress will be the centerpiece. And not the story. Later on, when people know the story, you can hire anybody you want. All right, boys and girls, we're going to bring on the great James Young. Why don't you listen to a little reggae here? Because everybody loves reggae. And uh, bring him on right now. Ooh. Well, hello, everybody. I'm so glad that I went on to uh, mispronounce James' name. It's not Hyung, it's Huang. So, <laughs> that's quite embarrassing. Well, how was your day today? Call in, 
657-383-1444. Let's bring on James. Hi, James. How are you doing, sir? Hi there. I'm doing well, thank you. We're calling you right now. It's good to have you. No, we wanted you on the show for quite a, quite a while now. Finally, we have you on there. How are you, how are you doing this weekend? I'm fantastic. Uh, it's nice to be on the radio. I'm in my pajamas, but I did brush my teeth for you, so I feel I feel ready to go. <laughs> Isn't it great being on the radio? You can you basically can wear shorts and, and, a, and a t-shirt and, and sound all fancy. <laughs> well, I can. I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Colorado, right? I am, but right now it's uh, 78 degrees out here. So to us, it's a thousand degrees. So uh, we excellent. freak out. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm an LA boy. I, I'm first generation. I'm, I'm I was born in LA. I moved out a couple of years ago. But you're born in, in Queens, New York, right? Uh, yeah, I was. I'm uh, originally from a New Yorker, and uh, but I've been out in L.A. since 2000, so I feel like this is home now. <laughs> so what are the what are the gigantic differences that you see between? I mean, the Chinatown's got is gigantic compared to L.A. I mean, L.A. is like one two strips compared to New York. Well, that's for sure. Yeah, um, plus you know nobody just happens to be passing through Chinatown in L.A. Uh, whereas in New York, you know, you could make an excuse to go pick up some takeout anytime you want. Because it's usually on the way somewhere. So, so you you start off in Queens, New York. What what happens in your in your life? So you you're a kid. What happens in your existence to make you want to do acting, producing? Because you're you're everything. I mean, you're the jack of all trades: producer, <laughs> writer, director, actor, stunt choreographer. I mean, you, you sweep. You do everything. Wow, well, we're going all the way start? back to the beginning, huh? All the way back. Oh my goodness, where to begin? Where to begin? Um, what, what inspired you? Um, well, let's see. I was just a young lad, and I got bullied. No, um, you know, I guess uh, my my brothers and sisters. Uh, I come from a large family. I'm the youngest of ten, so that's uh, uh, a bit unique right off the bat. You don't hear that very often. Right. And uh, you know, we I guess we were always encouraged to be creative. But uh, mostly as a hobby, I would say. I think I think we were always kind of encouraged to to be responsible and choose uh, safe careers and and to you know at the same time be well rounded, just so that we had arts and culture in our background. But you know, I just I, I only had fun doing my hobby. I only really enjoyed uh, playing make believe. I only really enjoyed um, you know imitating the Karate Kid and Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. And uh, I, I really love drawing comic books, and I really uh, love, you know, watching uh, action adventure movies. And then as I got a little bit older, I really was fascinated with relationship movies because I didn't understand girls. And uh, when Harry Met Sally was one of my favorite movies as a teenager, just because uh, I felt like it was teaching me something. Um, and then just by the time college rolled around, I, I, I guess I, I made the decision that. A lot of people make a living doing what they love doing, and a lot of people somehow keep industries going doing their hobbies. And uh, that's when I decided to give it a go, um, probably by the time I was in college. And I went to Rutgers University where I had to declare a major, and uh, I ended up declaring a study in uh, theater arts and cinema studies. So that's kind of where the training began. And... um, while I was at school, I actually started pursuing um, the industry with getting an agent and going on auditions, which they kind of discourage you from doing while you're in school, but I did it anyway. 
Right. Um, so well, you, have a, you, already, you seem to have a lot of well, James. You, you seem to have a lot of. I mean, you have you trained Taekwondo, and then you were a linebacker in, in, in high school football, and then you were in college <laughs> Taekwondo team. Right. You were welterweight in Taekwondo in college. I mean, it's obvious that you have discipline in that area. Was it was it your upbringing that created that kind of discipline, and did that discipline drive you into this area? Uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, a major lack of discipline and structure by my adolescent years, I was kind of uh, left in the house alone a lot with my older brother. And we were honestly left to run amok. All of my brothers and sisters were moving off to college and getting their own apartments in the city. And, um, you know, I I was mostly raised by my siblings. My my dad passed when I was very young. And uh, my mom was actually doing a lot of international travel at the time, uh, trying to, you know, put her stake in the ground as a a businesswoman. But... um, That that never quite formulated. So all throughout my adolescent years, and especially throughout high school, I was pretty much left alone to my own devices. So sports became a thing for me to do after school and hang out with the guys, and um, it, it it was something I would want to do just so that I could have that sort of uh, nuclear family, all American John Hughes experience that I'd grown up watching in the movies and knew nothing about. Uh, by that time, we had moved from uh, city into Princeton Junction, New Jersey, which was, uh, you know, another world to me. It kind of seemed like Saved by the Bell all of a sudden. And, um, you know, you, you rubbed elbows with the principal and, and joked around with uh, with teachers. And, and I didn't grow up that way. And, and so by the time I was in a high school that, that had varsity sports teams and cheerleaders, it just kind of seemed like that was the uh, the fun thing to do. And right. um, honestly, I think at the end of the day, it was all about uh, trying to trying to get girls. Really, <laughs> I'm not afraid to do that. <laughs> I mean, come on, let's be honest. I think it was like my freshman year of high school when I was like, "Thank you, you for know, being honest." Yeah, the big guys in the school were with the varsity jackets and the girls, and you know, exactly. I was like, do I- to be Emilio Estevez, or do I want to be Jed Nelson, or do you know where do I fit in here? I don't know. Right. Um, Which part of the Rat Pack am I? Am I the one who gets the girls? Or am I the one who gets nothing in the end? I want the girls. Yeah. So you know, I I, I think my favorite guy in that movie, even I, this this may not be the case for most people, but you know, I, I like Emilio the best, the Breakfast Club. Yeah. So that's kind of the route that I went, and. Uh, you know, I was never quite like, you know, the, the, the typical jock for several reasons. But, you know, as far as the, you know, you asked about the discipline and the, the, the sport side of it, it just was fun. It was just another hobby, you know. It, it was just a, a good sense of community. And, yeah, I definitely got a lot of discipline and work ethic from sports uh, from an early age. And that, I think, definitely translated into martial arts and, and now even just, you know, my work ethic as an adult. Well, that helped out with the martial arts because one of your first parts was in Shanghai 1920 when you played a martial arts instructor. Am I correct? Oh, you know, I've actually tried to get that credit removed. Uh, they, they they must have gotten oh. me mistaken with somebody else. That's not me. Mixed up with the other one. Yeah. I don't know who they're trying to credit there, but that that's the credit on oh. my IMDb list. That is not mine. And you know, I was looking at that too, and I'm like, there is no... Because I saw that movie. I'm like, how is that possible? That's, I know. I know. I just, I'm not that old. <laughs> I know. But that's awesome, though, isn't it? Awesome? I, I went crouching tiger on my on my IMDb by accident. Huh. So what, yeah, what was I, the first? Um, let's not guess. What was your first your first project? Um, 
while I was in college and auditioning, I was doing some like non-union work with uh, you know some non-union commercials and student films and short films, and they were all really bad and, and you know experimental and you know very artsy New York-y. Um, as far as professional work, with you know actually getting more than gas money or token money for the <laughs> subways back when we had tokens, um, right. you know I I actually one of the first things I started doing was background work. Bill Cosby's second show that was simply titled Cosby, and that right. was on the air for about Jeez. four seasons after the Cosby show. This was in the late nineties. I was in college, and I was wow. I was like a regular background performer, going in two three days Jeez. a week, going in for the rehearsal the camera rehearsal and then the live audience shoot. And I was like, just, you know, one of the, one of the regular guys that, that was able to get a paycheck while I was in college. Wow. That's incredible. Um, yeah. It was really great to, you know, watch such talented people, uh, uh working, uh, Madeline Kahn, the, the late great Madeline Kahn was on there. Dougie, yeah. Doug, Phyllis Rashad, and, and just being able to see them work from the rehearsal process, blocking, to the first taping in front of a live studio audience, the second taping, which was sure. usually an hour longer because everybody was just improvising and grouping around. Since they got the first uh, one on stage, two scripts, the second taping was just them having a ball and uh, right. just, you know, grouping around. So it was a really good extension of my education. But um, as wow. far as... That's, that's, know, that, that's, consider, like, that's like being on the, the I Love Lucy show right there. That's, that's, that's incredibly talented, incredibly skilled human beings for one of your first opportunities. That, that, that must have blown you away to, to see that. It did. It, it absolutely did. It was filmed in New York, uh, talking to story of studios where they uh, filmed Sesame Street as well. So a lot of history in that building. And uh, just great to watch. And, and watching, of course, is, is key for learning and just soaking it all in. Um, so nice. Yeah, as soon as I finished college, I uh, I got my SAG card doing an episode of Law and Order, and that was that would probably be my first official professional TV appearance, and that was nice. that was also in the late nineties, a long time ago. I, they 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 really tried to change you up by calling you Officer Chang. That was that was really nice. <laughs> I I do appreciate that, and I'll tell you why. Um, when I was fresh out of college, I'd been doing a lot of theater, and I finally got an opportunity to audition for that show because, you know, it's sort of a rite of passage being a New York actor. And I auditioned for a, sort of a punky skateboard high school kid named, uh, you know, Jose or something, and they were seeing different movies and whatnot. So I read, and I the casting director, and she was super great, and she said, um, that was great. You're a little old for the role because we really wanted to look 16, and I was probably 22. Um, but I, I looked young. She said, go out in the hallway for five minutes and and look over this other role. And it was for another, uh, character that was also scripted as Latino named like officer Gonzalez, I want to say. So I read for that and that was the role they gave me. And of course changed the name to officer Chang. So I do appreciate that they went outside the box and changed the name. Hey, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I got my side card that day. That is awesome. You know, it's, it's, you know it's, thank God we're Asian. I mean, we look like we're 20 years old. I mean, just to see you in, in Law and Order in 2000 is shocking to me. You, you, you look like you're 12. And then you just walk through Texas Ranger. I'm looking at this. I'm going, there's no way you're that old, dude. There's no way. That's, that's incredible. That so how was Walker, was another, Texas? I, I got to ask. Yeah, that was Go that was uh, pretty soon after. That was my first Los Angeles job. Um, when I was 
at Rutgers, I did. A, I'm going to jump backward a second and and say that when I was at Rutgers, I did the only internship they offered at film and television, which was working in a casting department at ABC Television in the city. And I just soaked up that summer with talking to actors nonstop. And one of the actors out there told me that you got to eventually go to LA, but first you need to get your SAG card and you need to do Law and Order. And about three months later, I did Law and Order and got my SAG card. And about three months after that, I packed up and had headed out to L.A. And I auditioned for Walker, Texas Ranger, and I got that role, which was also, again, um, you know, they, they didn't, they had sort of a mishmash of, of a trio there. They just knew that um, they wanted some ethnicity there, because that's how they do it. They get your guest stars and co-stars with, <laughs> with, with colorful faces, let's say. And uh, right. I believe I auditioned for... Um, a character that, again, was either scripted as Latino or African-American, I don't remember, but, but it wasn't scripted as Asian. And um, right. they, they, uh, the role went to me, and I got to go up to Dallas. Uh, as, as soon as I got to L.A., I you know I'm on a plane to Dallas. And that was, uh, right. it was a great experience. I was, I, was, I was very young. I was also playing high schooler uh, at 22. And, you know, I, I, wow. I looked the part at the time. And, yeah, it was a great, great, great time. Um, you know, the, the crew out there was just top-notch. They, they were talking about veterans. I think uh, my understanding was it was the crew from Dallas, the TV show, mm-hmm. that eventually, right. when that show ended, they started Walker, Texas Ranger. And I, I didn't know how many years that was on the air. It was a long time. And, right. um, I mean, these are, like, people that had 20 years of experience with two shows. 20-plus years, and they were just terrific. And, and Chuck Norris was just, you know, what an icon. He was great. And to do a scene with him and just spend a week with him, it's just, you know, it's surreal. Oh, Chuck Norris is great. Yeah. It's and, crazy. And, I mean, you grew up watching Chuck Norris fighting Bruce Lee, and then all of a sudden he's in front of your face. Yeah, there is a funny story there. That's, uh, <laughs> I guess there's no harm in sharing. He's a legend, and, and you know, you don't mess with Chuck. But, uh yeah. The funny, the funny thing I remember the most was after we did a, a rehearsal, and I finally get to do my scene with Chuck, and I'm just telling him that you know these kids jumped us, and then we were going to speak about them. Um, we do rehearsal, and everything's ready to go, and I'm all excited, and then I see him spur into like the first lady's ear, and then the first lady goes over to the director and directs back, and the first lady walks over to me, and I'm just thinking, oh no, did I do something wrong? And then the first lady says to me, uh, hey, we're going to move you over here, Have, sit on like the, the Put in the car of the police car, and I said, "Oh, okay, sure." And then I was thinking about, it. I'm like, "Why?" You know? And then he comes and whispers in my ear, and he said, "Chuck wants to be taller than you." <laughs> <laughs> so they sat him down, and he had to be, you know, the hulking, towering Chuck Norris that he is, with his ten-gallon hat, his, his boots, and stuff, <laughs> his mustache. And you know what? God bless him. He deserves to be the tallest one on the set. I- that is hilarious. <laughs> I don't think he, I don't think in his life he ever realized that that so many in Asia would eventually out out tower him in his lifetime. <laughs> I th- I think as a white American, I always I think he always thought he'd be bigger than everybody else. But uh, no. I, I think we we're about the same height, uh, and, but he just you know he needed to be chucked. He had yeah. to chuck it up. You got to chuck it up, baby. And, and boy, did he ever. Well, during this time, you also started going towards writing, producing, and directing. 
uh, your producing credits are, are out there as well, which is was fantastic. So you did field producing for, uh, you know, uh, True Life and and uh, you know Chapter Twenty One, which was which was uh, a, your short film, right? A short film that you wrote and directed yourself. Yeah, that was one of my earlier attempts at, at learning how to write and direct and edit. Um, you know, I think it's just an extension of, like I said, this, this lifestyle of trying to make a living doing your hobby. And sure. it's, it's not easy to make a living as an actor. You know, there's a lot of a lot of downtime. And everybody that I've known for the last 20 years are, are actors that are grinding it out and working. And, and you know, I think it's just part of part of being an artist in, in this business and, and doing lateral moves. Um, you know, I remember Denzel Washington saying that he never, ever, ever had a plan B in his life because he never went from his life to plan B. And that plan A was always right. naked as an actor, and I you know, expect the hell out of that. Um, but, you know, the reality is that not everybody gets that lucky to really make that living. Um, and we all need to make our own opportunities, so... Learning to write and uh, learning to direct and learning to edit and learning to be an all-around filmmaker was just an extension of exploring acting as a hobby and wanting to be a storyteller and wanting to um, feel a little bit more in control of my destiny and my career and create opportunities for myself in uh, front of the camera by extending my experience behind the camera. So, you know, I just did what what every filmmaker does and, and you start small and you learn to do a lot of different jobs and uh, don't be afraid to make mistakes and don't be afraid to reach out to others and say, hey, can you read my script and tell me what you think? That's one of the most gut-wrenching, nauseating experiences any writer has is to finally get a chance to get something that wrote. You know, sure. That, 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 that sure. can be more, more you know, nerve-wracking than getting up and doing a play as an actor. Um, right. So, to me, just starting off small and, and, and you know, uh, getting training in college and taking that training outside of college and doing more classes and reading more books and uh, finally just doing it. You know, that that was uh, one of the earlier stages uh, of learning how to use it and learning the, 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 the technology that was um, right. becoming so readily available to us at the time. And, um, yeah, you know, just a lot of different lateral moves that to me were in line with my goal and not plan B. Never, ever, ever want to do that plan B. But, you know, acting, um, I was doing everything I possibly could be, and I still do as an actor with always being in classes and um, always making sure I've, I've got the best representation with agents and managers I can get and um, right. never really turning down work and, you know, exploring different, different opportunities. And, and with all that, and all those man hours that you put into being an actor, you still have a lot of time unless you're on like a you know a, a network show or something that that's making you have 16 hour work days. Uh, if you don't have right. that, then you know for me, I didn't have that. Uh, so so I was constantly writing and uh, constantly seeing whatever money I could scrape together and talking to friends, being like, hey, I have this idea for something. You know, maybe you, you'd want to act in it with whatever. Right. Um, right. And and that just became a, a way of filling in the time, being productive, and, and pretending that I wasn't so unemployed. Right. Well, you, you were you were in several things early on, and, and you know, understanding your first generation, just just like me, were you, were you familiar with the fact that there was a gap in, in movies, cinema, media, 
for the Asian market as well. Uh, right now, it's just blowing up. Everything's just blowing up. A- Asians are, are into the market full frontal. But, but for a long time, it was very absent. And that's something that I noticed very early on, being Asian American myself. I thought it was really cute when you asked me, you know, how, did, how did I know who you were? Every Asian American knows who every other Asian American actor is. <laughs> or actress is because they're, seeking, they're, seeking, they're searching them out. Because <laughs> they want to see people who look like them. But uh, was that on your mind at all? For myself as an artist, it was never on my mind. But for you as an artist, was that ever on your mind when you were an actor? Because it seems like it, it, it was shown to you, like, this is who you are and this is who you represent. Is that the case or not? Um, you know, it's all a matter of perception, I think. It's, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't aware of it. Of course, every artist has to be aware of demographics because demographics drive industry. And uh, yes. we are part of that that cycle and that machinery, whether we like it or not. And, of course, I recognize that. Uh, of course, however, I, I don't ever want to – I never introduce myself or talk about myself as an Asian actor or uh, right. a minority actor or anything like that. I, I mean, there's enough Ooh. people in this industry that will do that for me. That right. It, in the same way that I don't single myself out that way, I, I also don't introduce myself as a – Homo sapien right. actor. <laughs> it's not that general and it's not that specific. I'm you just, should uh, be awesome. <laughs> I'm a homo Hi, sapien actor. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean yeah. to me, you know, I just, when when people ask about me, I, I say I tend to play a lot of cops and military men. Uh, sure. that, that's one of the first ways I tend to describe myself uh, because that's true. And, uh, as far as putting any labels of what I look like, what boundaries and demographics I fall into, I leave that to, up to other people if they choose to. But, you know, it's just my right. perception. Um, I feel sure. like I, I definitely commend cast directors and the writers and directors and producers that, that are open minded to casting outside of the box and going ethnic uh, It's like, why not? If the character doesn't have to say in the breakdown. But I find that it does happen, but it, it certainly could happen more often. And, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're breaking up now, James. Your, uh, your phone sounds like it's going underwater for us. Oh, okay. I haven't done anything. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. There you go. Just okay. when I thought we were saying crack- something good. No, you're saying something great. We we all want to hear you. The, the only problem is we can hear clicking in the background and some fuzz. Okay. Well, I haven't done anything different. I'm pushing all my cables and tighter. Very good. So, so, I mean, you you have a you have a litany of credits, and, and what's interesting is you were in Will and Grace as well, Vegas, and then Memoirs of a Geisha as well, which was uh, executive produced and produced by Steve Spielberg. You know, hold on, hold on, James. James, do us a favor and. and call All right, guys. We need to give ourselves a little break there. That that phone is going a little crazy. Uh, James will call back in right now. Why don't you listen to a little chandelier? Here you go. Party girls, don't get hurt. Can't feel anything. When will I learn? I push it down. I push it down. I'm the one for good time call. Phone's blowing up. Bring up my doorbell. I feel the love. I feel the love. One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. One, two, three, one, two, three, drink. Somebody. 
Who doesn't like Chandelier by Sia? Or or by uh, or by somebody else? <laughs> oh, let's bring back James. Hi James, how you doing? Hi there. All right. I'm I'm, I'm sorry well, we can hear you. Now. Sorry about that. We can hear you perfectly. Uh, that clicking Great. sound's gone too. Okay. So we're going on to you know, we're we're talking a little about Will and Grace, Las Vegas and Memoirs of a Geisha. So you know, I remember Will and Grace and what's hilarious about that is that feels a long time ago. That, that's does, incredible. Too, to I, can, <laughs> I barely remember that, but yeah, that, that was a long time ago. Now, how how is it like to to watch TV and then be on TV? I mean, we're talking about some huge huge television shows that, that, of the day. Yeah, uh, glad to be part of that history. Before the show was on uh, taken off the air, I was in the final season, I believe. So it was nice to sort yeah. of sneak in in there. Um, you know, it's always a, an honor and a privilege. Uh, any actor will tell you that. It's just, it's it's always exciting and it's always, you know, humbling. And uh, I'm just, I'm glad to be part of that cycle, you know. Well, t- tell me, what what would you say is different about your attitude that, that gets you these jobs, that puts you in these positions, to, to do the things that you want to do? Because I'm sure a lot of people, you know, they think hard work. But what does hard work mean to you that got you to this place that you're at right now? That's a good question. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was different, per se. Um, I, I would say as far as it's things that might, you know, from from your average person, like uh, I don't have the courage to become a teacher. I don't have the uh, the guts to become a cop. You know, I mean, the, the, it's it's if anything, I think, to be perfectly honest, there's a selfishness that goes into any performing artist that that says I I have to do this. I have to pursue this this goal of mine, this this vision that I have. And um, you know, I, I heard Gosling say something about you don't know if it's uh, a, a premonition or if it's um, hallucinations. You know, it, it, you don't know what it is until you actually go out and see for yourself. Right. So, right. you know, I don't, I don't think it's anything special per se. I think it's just uh, a different kind of fear. I, I have a fear of doing other work for a living. I I do I I have done and I continue to do other work for uh a paycheck and um some people have a fear of going after being an actor or director or writer in showbiz um but I think anybody who's in this business also have that same fear of of um you know maybe becoming an accountant not that there's anything wrong with that but um for me I I just that my fears were very much about not doing uh, my passion and my my hobbies that I I just knew well hell there's there's a community almost, of people out like there a, doing it almost like a fear Pardon of me? mediocrity almost a fear of mediocrity um you know I I feel like there's a judgment in that and I'm not being judgmental in any way about about people's right. career choices but it, it's just sure. about for me that there was a selfish mediocrity tenacity yes yeah right. there's just a selfish tenacity that I've always had with um. You know, if, if there's thousands and thousands of people in a five-square-mile radius in Los Angeles that are making a living doing the kind of things I want to do, then there's no reason why I couldn't go out there and do it myself. Uh, there's got to be some way. <laughs> right. um, but, yeah, you know, that that, that absolutely it, – it, my, my dreams and goals didn't work out like I envisioned when I was 20 and, again, haven't been that way since I've you know, been in my 30s, but definitely happy. And, and my, my, I'm, I'm fulfilled. And a lot of that has come from sort of 
broadening my experience to wanting to write and direct. And that's been some of the most rewarding work I've ever done with um, my wife and I making our film starting from scratch and our, uh, another feature that we recently completed called First Date with a One. Um, and, you know, that, that you asked before about expanding into writing and directing. And to me, that's become more as big a part of my identity as uh as being in front of the camera really so so that's, that's what you want to do i mean you were in two huge films like memoirs of geisha and tony scott's uh you know deja vu when you watch these films does that inspire you to want to be behind that camera and be in that position as well i was always inspired uh before that experience for sure um and the the size of the film is never really the the motivating factor. I mean, sure, the food is better and you get a nicer trailer. Um, and other right. people might recognize it a little bit more. But that that's just um, – I don't think that really affects my perception of my overall career or, or, or where I fit in. Like, um, <laughs> I don't know what year it was, 2008 maybe, where – I did a very high-profile role in, in the TV show Lost that had a giant following. Nobody, everybody knows that. I don't have to explain Lost to anybody. But I remember getting text messages or emails or, you know, at the time I think MySpace was the thing. Right. <laughs> but getting <laughs> messages of like, whoa, everything from, whoa, I didn't even know you were an actor, to, hey, you finally made it. And getting messages like that from, you know, distant high school friends or people I haven't spoken to in a while or whatever – it's it's an interesting perspective because to me it was just another yeah. job. It wasn't my first. Right. I had done plenty of other roles, much bigger roles, but you know, just a far smaller right. audience. And then for somebody to say like, "Wow, you finally made it," and I'm thinking, "Gee, there's two points of view on that. <laughs> the first point of view is my life is exactly the same this month as it was last year. This month, right. so I don't know what made it really means. And B, what have I been doing for the last you know ten years? Have I not been making it? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm paying my rent doing what I love. I feel like I made it, you know? And uh, it's right. an interesting point of view from an outsider's perspective when, when they see your career in something that's really high profile versus what I've just been doing all along and feeling pretty fulfilled, you know, and, and loving what I do. Um, well, I, t- but, you know, I, tell you, I tell you what, if you, if you can't articulate it, and I'm pretty sure you've already articulated one of the things that I see that definitely separates you from the pack is the fact that you have a different perception on success, on career, on happiness, on making it. Uh, you also have a very political mind. The way that you talk, the way you perceive things is very uh, uh, straightforward and very accurate, opposed to very kind of a melancholy and, and, uh, and flamboyant. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you sound a lot like my friend Charles, whereas you, know, you, ha- you have your head on your shoulders, which, which is why you have such a strong career. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I think it, um, I, I, I certainly wasn't always this way. I think um, when I was just acting and really, really diving into the craft of acting, I, I think I was becoming a bit insane <laughs> and uh, incredibly egotistical and incredibly uh, self-centered and made a lot of bad life decisions, actually. And um, if anything, I, I would say broadening my spectrum into making films and being thrust into the role of producer or director or editor and, and growing in my career and growing as an artist and growing as a storyteller and putting myself in different situations. I think that has certainly gotten me, as you say, a little bit more, uh, you know, politically minded in a way and, and 
you know, judicious maybe just, I, I think I've been forced to become that way, but I certainly wasn't always that way. I think. We need, we need to, you know, I mean, we're, we're very close to the, the same kind of arena of, of uh, I don't want to say the same age, but the same kind of, uh, same kind of area. We just have to go through what we have to go through. But did you did you find that it was film and television or media that they kind of push you into being something that that you didn't quite recognize anymore, or was it just life that pushed you in that direction, or or decisions that you were making while in the film? Go ahead. Um, is this about films and just the overall career, or, or no? I'm just talking about you know because we we all we all get a little lost along the way. You know, you said that before you became politically minded, you got a little lost along the way. What what brought you out of that perspective of your mind? I mean, we all go through that. Everybody goes through that. But what what took you out of that and brought you into this new perspective of your brain? And the oh, way you sure, perceive sure. Reality? You know, a lot of people have their own versions of, I guess, rock bottom. Uh, and, and that's a, a term associated with addiction. Uh, I was never really addicted to anything, thank God. But there was certainly, a, a I guess, a, a social and emotional rock bottom that I think anybody has to hit, no matter what their struggles are. And for me, I think, uh, you know, feeling at my lowest and, and coming to that point where you start to make different life choices and say to yourself, I'm really tired of feeling this way. Or I look in the mirror and I'm not happy with where I've come. So, you know, it's never too late to hit the reset button and just say to yourself, I'm wiping the slate clean. In some cases, that means uh, ditching certain people from your life or just retooling the way your brain works a little bit and saying like, you know, gosh, I'm so negative or I'm so cynical or, um, you know, I, I keep, I, I keep making jokes about how I can't find, uh, anybody to love or to love me, you know, and, and, and however it is you, you just sort of hit the floor and pick yourself back up. There's a million metaphors to draw from. I think, uh, I think it's kind of the same for everybody. And I, to me, one of the most comforting things, to hear is you are totally normal. <laughs> I think everybody, especially that is an artist, wants to be this special snowflake and you know, they always want to say this word unique and they always want to be different and they always want to say that, you know, there's nobody like me and I'm you know, even like a Dr. Pepper commercials are constantly all about, you know, there's only one you and people are so sold on this thing. And to me there's nothing more comforting <laughs> Then hearing you are so normal, you're, everybody goes through that. You, everybody has experienced that. What you're going through is is textbook, and to me that's really comforting. Right. Because right. I think we all feel kind wow. of freakish, and it's hard not to feel like uh, you know, um, like nobody understands you, or you feel incredibly alone. You know, I think that's sort of a default human condition for, you know. Our generation, especially the next generation, that is, you know, uh, I, I think totally raised to feel like uh, the most special hipsters on the planet. You know, it's. Uh, I, I think it's only getting yeah. worse. I think so too. You know, you know now that I'm looking at your your your, your direct. Now this is not your directorial debut, but this is the new direct directing job you're doing, which is the first date. And you're in pre-production right now. No, we finished first date. Um, it was a. Uh, actually something that we kind of just did to put online on, on Vimeo on demand and Amazon. Hmm. And that was something that we kind of designed to make and just release ourselves straight to the interview and straight to the internet in a very short period of time. Nice. Well, you directed it with Elizabeth Sandy and you direct, you directed and wrote it as well. Now you pronounce your last name Huang, right? Yes. Huang. It's like 
right. W O N G with an H in yeah, front of Huang, it. Right. Huang, right? You yep. know what's funny is that when you when you renamed your when you renamed your character in one of, one of your sh- one of your movies, you actually na- you actually pronounced it Wong. Jason Wong. Yeah, Jason Wong. Is that because people yeah. kept on pronouncing it wrong, so you you you, you spelled it out the way it's pronounced? Probably. I was also probably just being lazy when it came to picking a name. Um, but I mean, hopefully so, people so you, will know how to pronounce it a little better now. There's the new show Fresh Off the Boat, and they have the same last name of H U A N G Wong, so they say that oh name a lot God. of stuff. I know. So it'll, you, you it'll know probably what? You become know my, a little when, more popular. I love that show. That kid is me. It was just funny because when I when I told my mom when I was a kid I want white people food she had no idea what the hell I was talking about she looked at me like what is white people food anyways so you did for, <laughs> so, you did for, so tell me about this tell me about this this uh, movie first date because this, this is about a little bit about you know the world that in the state we are in today you know we were talking a little bit about you know the pessimistic pessimistic mind and, and feeling lost in the world and first dates always feel like that like who am yeah, I I feel like a strange is, uh, cat I mean. Definitely. First date is, is it, it was a pretty experimental feature that we made that is, uh, I guess, um, best categorized as a mockumentary, and it's set in the world of reality dating shows. And um, I did a bit of filming for uh, docu-based reality shows like True Life on MTV and a few other satellite uh, projects for MTV that, that were all in the reality world. So I, I certainly have experience uh, directing and producing shows like that. So this was sort of a a funny little experimental film that we made about those blind date shows and exposed shows that, and, and those, um, you know, silly little things you see on TV that are kind of mindless television. And it, it was just sort of a romp. It was a, it was a very experimental thing. Um, it was, it was something that we were able to gather 26 actor friends together and improvise uh, a, a loosely scripted feature film that had uh, eight separate dates as um, sort of the backdrop to this, story of, of what it means to try to find uh, truth in such an artificial uh, platform of reality, TV. And yeah, it also had a lot of commentary on, you know, what it means to actually meet somebody and fall in love for the first time. And can you capture that on TV? And is it real? And, you know, it's all about uh, from the point of view of the filmmaker who is um, desperately trying to produce an honest show in the world of reality TV. So, of course, he's contended with uh, the network producer and all the contestants who are, you know, big phonies, really. Right. We're talking about reality TV. You're also in, in the fantastic movie that came out this year, Nightcrawler, which was, that was an amazing, amazing movie. You know, I, I, I already, we already had been talking before I'd seen Nightcrawler. So when I saw you Nightcrawler, I'm like, now I know what to talk about. <laughs> but that, the movie was, I mean, <laughs> Actually, I did not know you were a nightcrawler before I asked you to be on the show, on the radio show, which is hilarious to me. And then I saw the re- well, then I saw the movie. It was and an I honor to have like- a small part in, in such a great movie. Uh, I, I got to work a lot of days and just sort of be there as Bill Paxton's right-hand man, his whipping boy, in a sense. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it was it was a great experience um, and, and just such a terrific movie. And, and I was just soaking it all in as, as each night went by. Um, but, yeah, it was, I was really thrilled to be part of that and I think uh I hope I hope it, it finds an audience on DVD and on demand which it just came out a few weeks ago and uh yeah people should see that film it's, it's really really entertaining and funny and dark and twisted and um oh yeah you know the, I, movie's the, the movie really is amazing it's a great movie yeah they, they call it a, a great American success story is the way they described it 
<laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Being being from L.A. and being away from L.A. for just a short period of time, it's amazing when I watch L.A. News now, and the only thing I watch are, like, crash videos, runaway videos. This guy's running away on the PCH, and it just it's Nightcrawler. It, it's insane. Uh, but you, you can't see that when you're in the mix. But when you see the right. film, he's almost a justified character. It, it, it's pretty much insane. So when you look at the Bill Paxton character, he looks like the old, the old media. He looks like the new media almost. Like the go after them, doesn't matter what it takes, get the, get the picture, get the shot. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to ask you do, do you, do you see Hollywood as the same way? Because that was almost like a metaphor on the way old Hollywood and new Hollywood is. Like the new Hollywood is, I'm going to slit your throat, and the old Hollywood was more of a, you know, I'll tie your hand behind your back kind of gig. Do you find do you find that to be accurate, or do you find Hollywood to be the reality that you create? I think it's different for everybody, but I think it's, um, I mean, I can't speak for Hollywood as a whole, um, but as far as what I see, it's it's just an ever-changing beast, and, and it's honestly so young. I mean... You know, people who who would have ever thought the phrase uh, television, uh, sorry, uh, who who would have ever thought that the term radio is dead would have ever existed a hundred years ago. You know, and right. and radio is uh, still keeping a pulse. It's still there. It's not what yeah. it used to be. And uh, film, literally speaking, is practically dead. You know, the last big right. film to be shot on celluloid that everybody knows about is probably Interstellar. And that was a conscious choice of him to actually shoot on film. And um, actually, Inherent Vice you know, the, was the last film to be shot on film. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. That's cool. And you know, yeah, P.T. Anderson, Tarantino, and good. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Tarantino was shooting. No, film. I was saying that. I was saying that P.T. Anderson, um, uh, G- P.T. Anderson, uh, and Christopher Nolan, and also uh, John Quinn Tarantino are all on cellular. They're all on film. We had our film in Quentin Tarantino Theater the last time they had the digital screening in there. So Inherent Vice is the last film. I saw the 70-millimeter print at the uh, at the uh, Arclight in, in Hollywood. I don't know if you saw that film yet, but it's insane. I did. I saw exactly that print in the Arclight, yeah. Oh, you did? What would you think? I thought it was terrific. I, I thought it was one of the most underrated movies of the year as far as award season goes, but um, that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I mean – the film industry is, is just, it's, it's only about 100 years old. I mean, it's, it's right. only been an industry for about 80 years. And uh, it's, it's just sort of evolving. You know, I mean, I, I'm losing roles out to guys that have more YouTube subscribers than I do because they have their <laughs> built-in audience. They have right. no experience as actors and no real film credits or TV credits. But, you know, to get an independent film made, they're looking at, you know, square one of financing it and that's that's a giant challenge that's a challenge that i right. still haven't figured out myself i've i've self-financed uh my feature film with my wife elizabeth sandy who you mentioned uh we find we self-financed starting from scratch which was you know to date our, our, i feel like our biggest accomplishment and something i'm still sort of exhausted and reeling from wow and that's because so- you know i don't have that ability to raise money just yet so that was something that we saved up and and self-financed with our, our little nest egg that we've been building. Are, are you seeing those investments pay off? Are, are you are you looking to produce more films with, with your own, or are you looking to produce more with, with other people's cash flow? I sort of have a, 
almost a 20-year career of self-financing my own projects, whether they were short films or fun little web series right. or, or, you know, um, very ambitious short films to pilot presentations to um, a previous feature film um, that I won't get into. But, um, yeah, with Stutter from Scratch, it was, it was sort of the mother of uh, projects for us at the time. And it's not something I would uh, readily do again with my own money. Uh, we... we mm. We're pretty masterful with making a low, low, low-budget film and pulling every resource in favor we could in order to pull something off like that where we didn't um, spend an exorbitant amount of money. We certainly spent more than we intended to, but that's independent filmmaking. Everybody will tell you that happens. Um, sure. I don't, I don't really... Uh, I, I certainly don't plan on doing that again for a few different reasons. A, I, I feel like I need to refocus my ability to learn how to find investors and play that game. I've never been good at that, but that's just another skill set that I have to learn how to do. And uh, secondly, uh, I'm expecting my first child, so that's a game changer. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and Elizabeth is uh, three and a half months pregnant now, so that's exciting. And, yeah, uh, yeah our, our priorities are just going to shift a little bit. And, you know, up until now, every dollar I've made as an actor, I've sort of blown it as a filmmaker, you know, buying the latest camera gear and buying uh, props and costumes and, and paying other actors for low-budget contracts through SAG and SAG New Media stuff, you know. Um, I, I certainly don't regret it. To answer your question, if it's paying off, it's paying off in a, in a few different ways. I mean, we the, the experience alone was tremendous and we have something to show for ourselves and we did the whole festival circuit throughout 2014 and landed a distribution deal with a terrific company called film festival flicks and uh, they've got their own platform for online dvd distribution as well as theatrical so that was a terrific experience and we're we're newly out there just uh in mid 2014 we released in uh, select cities and then online and on DVD, and uh, starting from scratch is available to the public. So we, uh, there, there's a bit of a lag time until you start to see any returns, of course. So I can't quite speak monetarily if, if there's been any returns yet. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy we did it. We made it cheap so that pressure isn't too tremendous. And we don't have any investors to, to answer to. And that was, um, that's something that was a conscious choice. And um, we don't, the only pressure is the pressure we put on ourselves. We don't have to really tell, you know, the bank or the money people, it's coming, just be patient, or I promise we'll get you something soon. You know, we, we don't have that worry. Right. James, I, I like to I like to end the show on, on, on a very positive note. I don't know a lot of people, the most typical question they ask is, is, what could I do? If I was living in New York and I was just like you, I was one of 10 children and, you know, I, 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 for selfish reasons, want to be a writer, director, producer, and I want to be just like you. Can you can you give me the first three steps that they could they can give me the attitude that you have, and put me in the position to to get what I what I desire, which is probably acting or or directing or, or writing. What could I do? Well, um, I would say first and foremost, surround yourself in that environment. So the easiest way to do that would be uh, classes. And there's always classes, whether it's at a community college or your local state college or whatever, you know, or if you're in high school, then, then join the drama club, you know. And, and uh, um, for example, UCLA right here in L.A. has extension courses that anybody of any age or any degree can do, you know, things like that. 
when I was in high school, I was doing community college courses uh, that were outside of high school, uh, the high school curriculum. So just being around other like-minded people, I think, is the very first step. And then you can, that immediately just exponentially opens your world. And you can, you have somebody to talk to about things and you have people to bounce ideas off of and you have a creative environment to work from. So first and foremost, I would say classes, classes, classes. Um, gosh, uh, secondly, I, I would say that there's certainly a discipline to it all. And, you know, I think the people that are really driven and have persistence, uh, they can't be stopped. So once you get on a path, you, you if, if you're serious about it, you will inevitably make it a discipline. And you won't, you know, you just will find ways to become productive, whether that means self-submitting to audition for things or being at your laptop and writing scripts or collaborating with friends and being like, hey, I want to shoot a fight scene. Let's choreograph something and throw it down on our iPhones. You know, whatever the case may be, let's learn how to edit on a on the free software that comes with a computer. And then we'll save up and buy Final Cut Pro or whatever. Um, I, I think, like any craft, it's a discipline. It's it's not something that you can just say you are. You can't just say you're an actor because you decided to be. You have to go out and do the work. You have to go out and create opportunities for yourself to to feel like a disciplined you know, um, worker, you got to grind. And, um, thirdly, I would say, you know, anybody who wants to do this kind of work, they don't need advice. (laughs) That's the best advice I can give is that anybody who's really going to become an actor or really become, going to become a writer and a director, it is so darn hard and so darn competitive that you will just find a way to become that and nothing is going to stop you. I've never been discouraged or encouraged to do what I do. I just had to do it. And I think anybody in this industry that is doing just that will pay the same thing, that regardless of advice or um, discouragement or parents saying you should do something more stable, any of those things, and all the statistics you hear and all the obstacles you hear, whether it be about um, percentages or demographics, nobody can stop people Nobody can stop artists from becoming the artists that they want to be. And and I think that's the ultimate uh, <laughs> irony of it all is that, right. you know, you, you, there's really no advice I possibly could give. People are going to become the Which artists that they are destined to be. Well, you know, your story is inspirational at the very least. And what you've said along the way, it's definitely going to help people because your perception on on the media, because there is no television anymore either. Because I, I hear people say, I don't watch TV. It's like, yeah, there's no thing as TV anymore. I, I, watch, I watch my iPad. I watch my computer. Everything changed. The only constant universe has changed, as Buddhism 101 says. But what you said today was very, very compelling to a lot of people. And I can see in our message boards right now that people are very inspired by you. Tell me, James, how, how, we, how could we find you? If we want to get in contact with the great James Huang, how can we get in contact with you? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I mean... <laughs> You have everything? Uh, well, kind of. I'm not that active on, on Twitter or Instagram or anything. But um, I have a website. Uh, it's my name with the number one in front of it. So one James Huang. That's H-U-A-N-G dot com. So one James Huang is usually my handle on most things. And, um, yeah, you know, I have a, a, a contact thing there. You can email me through the website. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be happy to answer questions and more 
questions off off the air and whatnot. Um, I also want to. I have a I have a pretty solid analogy I just came up with. I'm looking at what? my DVD shelf right now. One of my favorite films of all time, Rounders. Mm-hmm. I, I, just to expand a little bit on the notion of of you're going to become the artist that you were destined to be. That can right. change. I'm no spring chicken mm-hmm. anymore. My perception of the artist I wanted to become has, has certainly changed decade to decade to decade, and. <laughs> I think the best analogy is if you're a fan of rounders. I came into this industry as a young pup, kind of like Worm, played by Ed Norton. And I wanted to be like Mikey, played by Matt Damon. But as time progressed, I became Kanish, played by John Turturro. Yes. <laughs> He's that leathery-butted grinder, that rounder who just grinds it out month to month, paying the bills. And now that I'm Kanish, I think my goal has to be to become Teddy KGB, played by Malkovich. Because there's nowhere to go except there. you got to right. be the boss. <laughs> so That's a great analogy. I, I think that movie has it all. I think I've, I'm evolving throughout all the characters. And, you know, I would love to still say that I'm Mikey, played by Matt Damon, who's the hero. But honestly, I'm, I'm Kanish, man. I'm, I'm sitting on my leathery butt, grinding it out month to month, just feeding the family. And I'm happy to do so. Or we'll have but to it's time to that, become right? the boss. <laughs> well, what's next for you? Do you, do you, have, do you, have, do you have plans on, on your next film, on your next project? Can you talk about anything that, that you have on, on your plate? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I just want as many people as possible to see starting from scratch to show that, you know, I, I'm a capable filmmaker and I can tell a story. And just say that, you know, I'm not a rookie at this. And, and I've been showing that film to whoever I can as a way of saying like, hey, yeah, and it's a big question. What are you going to do next? Every every filmmaker needs to be able to answer that question. Um, so do you, have, do you have a website for that particular project? Yeah, my production company is called Yellow Sun Films, and that's the website, yellowsunfilms.com. And um, if you go to the About page, you'll see the different things we have in the docket. And, um, yeah, they're, they're things that I can't self-finance, so I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out that world of, of networking, which to me is sort of an ugly word. But, um, you know, I, I definitely want to continue to make films and doing what I love. So that's that's certainly in there. Um, I made a short film called Failsafe, which was a short uh, action film. And that was nice. meant to be about a, like a slice of a feature. Uh, so it was like a kind of a concept film for a feature film, which was sort of like uh, The Born Identity with Asians. And, um, you know, a lot of cool sexy action in that short film called Failsafe, and you can see that full film online. It's seven minutes long. Uh, we have a horror script that uh, is really, really terrific, and, and again, it's a, a horror haunted house movie with uh, a bit of an Asian slant on that as well, um, with an Asian female lead. And, uh, nice. you know, there's, there's such great Chinese superstition out there that it's a perfect backdrop for a new take on a haunted house film, and uh, that's something that we're trying to raise money for. And um, I have another script that I'm also working on called uh, Victor about with, with a bit of a martial arts backdrop, uh, sort of an homage to the, to, the, to the great masters of martial arts set in a sort of a family story in LA. And that's sort of a, I hate to use the term, but a coming of age drama. So yeah, we have a, we have a lot of like projects that. that we're trying to get off the ground. Wow. You got, you got a lot of things going on right now and it's, it's called Yellow Sun Productions. Yellow Sun Films. So uh, that's Yo, send if films. you, yeah. My 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 personal website has links to everything. Our our films starting from scratch, first date, Yellowstone films, 
So if you go to onejameswong.com, uh, I think jameswong.com was taken by 20 million other people. So, uh, yeah, just put, put, put the number one in front of my name, and that's my website. One James Young. Okay, I got that. And all of you got that, too. We'll make that announcement. James, that was fantastic. And we were very appreciative for you being on here. Uh, congratulations on all your, all your great success. And congratulations on your wife being pregnant. We're so, we're so happy for you and your family, your growing family. Uh, well, thank, thank you, you for being I'm on the radio show to. today. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. And I, I, I want to thank everybody for listening. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you know what, what the child's going to be, a boy or a girl? Yeah, we're, we're expecting a boy. So uh, oh. in about six months. <laughs> In six months, we'll have a, a, a little one of me running around. We're going to have a little, another little James running around. Yeah, but I hope it looks like Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, James, for being on the radio show today. We really, really greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. The great James Young. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. James Wong. Bye-bye. James Wong. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to snap after this. I promise you. The great James Wong. Hey, everybody. Listen, my brain is dead today, so I'm obviously mispronouncing everything and everybody's name and forgetting uh, titles as well. So that's fantastic. I'll try to keep my head above water. One James Wong. That's where you'll find him. Yellow Sun Films. Go go check it out. Check out these projects. I'm very, very appreciative for him coming on the radio show. I, I introduced myself, and it was very, very cute because he he asked me where I, where I knew him from. Uh, if you see his face, you'll recognize him immediately. If you see the film that he's in, you'll want to see, or have you seen these films before? If you've never seen these films before, go rent them right now. James, thank you very much for being on today. We really greatly appreciate it. Nightcrawler was an excellent film. He played one of Bill Paxton's boys inside the inside the uh, the van. Some deja vu, eagle eye. And, and what the great thing about James was he was trying to explain to you about the level of success, the, the amount of success. I was just talking recently to a person about somebody I know who essentially has everything a person should want, which is success financially, personally. They just had a child with their beautiful wife. And the person is miserable. You see their face and they have this staunch look on their face. They look like miserable little sons of guns. I don't understand this attitude. And when you listen to James, James has had a, a full career. His career is just starting off now, but he has a full career already. And he's about to have a child, and he's very happy, and he's very articulate, and he's, uh, he's very graceful and gracious about the things in his life. You see, that is somebody who you look up to. That is somebody who you follow. That is somebody who you're led by. The other person who can't find happiness in even the most mundane existence is somebody that you run away from. They'll never be happy, no matter what will ever happen. They'll never be happy. You see that James is happy with... You know, he was in Will and Grace. And you can, see, you can, you can hear him saying that a, a lot of the films, the big films that we're impressed by, like Nightcrawler and the films that I'm naming, the, the films that you're recognizing, are not the films necessarily that he's caught by. It's really more the projects that set him up to be in those projects that he's appreciated of. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not the big movies that's important, but the movies or the projects that got you to those big movies that are important. Is that a different perception? That perception is more about loving the people that are part of your life and appreciating them for who they are and what they've given you instead of hating people for whatever reason. It sounds more like these people and these things are the stone that sharpens my sword. 
And that's the great thing about James Wong. James, thank you very much for being on the radios today. We, we greatly appreciate it. Yellow Sun Films, one James Wong is his website. Please check it out. He's also on Twitter. He's also on Facebook. I am very sorry for butchering your name. I'm I'm pretty sure it's it's uh my head's gonna explode after the, the radio show ends. Thank you everybody for for joining us today. I greatly appreciate it. It's been a great Sunday morning afternoon. What are you gonna do today? It's got to be 90 degrees out there in Los Angeles. It's about 70 degrees out here in Colorado. To us, it's 1,000 degrees because 72 is like 1,000. What's funny is that you can still see ice outside. We didn't do this weekend. You can have fun. Go out there and see the world. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. May the great James Huang today. I'm your host, Steve Pisa on Cinephiles Radio. God bless. Have yourself a great weekend. Ciao.